Good evening and welcome back to Geeking with Destination Venus. Reggie here again with another hour of geeky stuff and not quite the episode I'd hoped to bring you because stuff has happened and some of it is, well, sad. Because we have to start this week with another geeky obituary. And this one, this one is particularly sad to me. Not because it's a tragedy. The person we're talking about was 97. They had an exceptionally good life in many ways. They were certainly loved and respected, and we'll get to that. But I was going to do Ramona Fraden, who has died at the age of 97 in the last week, as one of our wonderful women of science fiction. And in fact, she would have been the wonderful woman of science fiction last week, if I'd got myself in gear and got the episode properly organised in a timely manner the way I'd meant to. And in that original piece I did for the wonderful women of science fiction section, I was sort of a little bit self-congratulatory in that I, I do keep saying that we should talk about these wonderful people and tell them how wonderful they are while they're still with us. And I almost did that, and now I haven't. So who was Ramona Fraden? And I should say at this point that I realised as people were starting to pay their own tributes on the various social media platforms, I may be mispronouncing her name wrong. If I am, I've been doing it for nearly 40 years. But it, it has occurred to me over the last week that I have seen this woman's name written down in print, thousands of times. I don't think I've ever heard anybody say it out loud. And so if it's not pronounced Freedom, I'm really, really sorry, but that's how I've been pronouncing it for nearly 40 years. But who was this wonderful woman? Well, she was an artist, an exceptional comics artist, with a career that goes back just almost, not quite, not quite, but almost, to the earliest days of American superhero comics. Uh, she was born on October the 2nd, 1926, in Chicago, although she moved to New York when she was five. Obviously, she did this with her family, although in many biographies of Freyden, it just says she moved to New York when she was five. And I do have this image of this little five-year-old wandering around Manhattan with a drawing board under one arm and a, a, a sort of pencil in in the other hand. And, and I know that's a ridiculous image, but it, it does sort of suit her attitude a little bit. Um, she moved with her family to New York when she was five. Um, her father, Peter Dom, was a well-known uh, commercial lettering guy. Uh, he designed logos for people you'll have heard of. Um, Elizabeth Arden, for example. Camel Cigarettes. Uh, would be another one. She also had an older brother and an uncle in the lettering business. So you can you can see that from a very early age, she was part of that commercial art, graphic design sort of world. Um, her brother became a technician uh, for the Air Force, uh, or at least the Air Corps, as it would have been then, uh, and eventually died um, of alcoholism, and uh, she lost her mother, who fell ill and died in 1952. So, you know, that there, there was 
a fair measure of tragedy and misfortune in her her life into sort of into her 30s growing up she never did read comic books uh, that's largely i suspect because she was growing up in the 20s and 30s when comic books were i suppose they were becoming a big thing in the 30s but they weren't that big of a deal in sort of the late 20s uh, but she did have a love for newspaper strips and her father seeing this love of that kind of art encouraged Freden to go to art school so she did um she went to the parsons school of design and when she graduated from there uh she began to enter the world of cartooning if not actual comics um and it was not long after she left art school that she married her husband uh dana Freden, who was a new yorker cartoonist and he encouraged her to try cartooning he introduced her to uh the comic book letterer george ward who was a friend of dana Freden, uh who asked her for samples of her artwork so that he could pitch it and soon enough she landed her first job at dc comics with um, some work on a character called shining knight she eventually got a regular gig illustrating adventure comics um starring aquaman a character who is still around now this was right at the start of what comics historians now call the silver age and uh, you know adventure comics 260 is regarded as one of the the sort of starting points of the silver age and she was involved in revamping the character of aquaman for that issue alongside that um working in conjunction with the writer robert bernstein uh, she co-created aqualad who is kind of robin to aquaman's batman really uh who was introduced in adventure comics 269 in february 1960 it was just after this that she created the character that introduced me to her artwork because it was just after she'd finished work on that aquaman strip that she co-created the character of metamorpho the element man this is a character i first discovered in the 80s as one of the members of the outsiders team which was one of the many teams in the 80s that batman was part of i really love metamorpho he's a really goofy character he's the element man he can turn himself into any element you like he can be a liquid he can be a metal he can be a gas whatever you want him to be usually used for comedic effect and he's quite visually striking he's he's kind of divided up into sections in in visual terms and you know he really was along with co-creator um bob haney uh, she really did come to think of metamorpho as as her baby her creation and honestly i don't think i have come across a version of metamorpho i like better than hers i think she drew him brilliantly but i also i don't talk about artwork much on this show which for a comics fan you'd think was odd but i'm more of a story guy honestly i will tolerate terrible terrible art in a comic if the story is good Freden, though i really love her art style just because it's not my first priority doesn't mean that i don't like or care about art and there's a fluidity to ramona Freden's line 
that I really, really like. It's it's a slightly old-fashioned style, which you would expect from someone who's been at work in comics since the 1950s. But it's it's an old-fashionedness that reads as classic, not dated. It is beautiful to look at. A, a sort of gentle, organic line, which honestly I think a lot of modern artists could learn from. And she remained in demand. I mean, her... Her heyday, if you like, was certainly in the 1960s. But she was working in comics and in comic-related projects, doing c- covers and that kind of thing, right up to her retirement, which was in January 2024. Last month, this woman retired. She really was working right up until that point. It's very, very clear that she loved her work. And also, it's very, very clear that the people in the industry loved her. There is a wonderful story I read on social media this week, and now I can't find it, so I can't tell you who told this story or which comic convention this happened at. I swear, I've Googled it, I've looked on all the social medias, I cannot find it, but I definitely read this story, and I love it, because it says a lot about the regard in which uh, Ramona Freyden was held amongst her fellow pros. But it also tells you a lot about comics as a community, the people who are in it. And so we're in a a convention, a a mid-sized convention in America in the mid-90s. Freyden is there as a guest. Uh, She was at that time working on a newspaper strip, which she was not loving. And she was coming to the end of her contract. She had no intention of renewing it. But she was a, a consummate professional. So what she'd done was get a whole stack of pages for that comic strip in the in the newspaper finished and sent off to the publisher so that she would be free over the weekend of the convention to do the convention thing you know to do do some sketch commissions and talk to fans and you know do that thing that pros do at cons as a bonus she had the penciled pages for those newspaper strips with her and you know the the idea was you know you could sell the sell those original artwork. It's, it's something that a lot of artists do. You sell you sell the original pages um, once the copies have been inked. So you know make a little bit of extra money, and you know it's it's a means that fans can get a proper souvenir and you know that kind of thing. And then she got a phone call from the publisher. All of the pages that she'd sent them had got lost in the post. They were not at the office of the newspaper publisher, and they needed them. ASAP, like Monday morning. Now, it was lucky, therefore, that she had the rough pencil pages because all she really had to do was ink them. And, you know, she ink over the, ink over the pencils, send those in, and, you know, jobs are good. But she knew that was going to take most of the weekend. And that's frustrating for her because that meant she was going to miss the con. She was going to have to spend the whole time in her hotel room inking the, up those pages. Very, very frustrating given that she'd done it once already. But she was a pro, and that's what you got to do. She mentioned this to the person who told this story on social media on the Saturday morning at breakfast, basically just to apply. He was involved in the organisation of the con, I think. And so she just wanted to apologise that, you know, I'm sorry that, you know, I'm not going to be around for the fans this weekend after all, because I've got this problem, I've got this thing that I've got to do. I've got a deadline, and, you know, there's, there's no way. I can do anything other than lock myself in my hotel room this weekend and just ink. Now, this struck the 
person she was talking to as suboptimal for several reasons. Because, first of all, he was a fan of Ramona Freden and he wanted her at the con. Second of all, non-appearance of an advertised guest always involves disappointed fans. That's never good at a con. So, he did a bit of wandering around Artist Alley. Because, clearly, there were a lot of comics artists at this comics convention. That's, you know, kind of where they hang out. And so he explained to a bunch of people, and we are talking some seriously big names here, or at least people who, like Freden, are not necessarily big names outside of comics, but people who most comics fans would know as rock stars. And every single one of them said, oh, hell yeah, give me a page. I'd love to ink over Ramona Freden's pencils. That's a, you know, what a, what a fantastic thing to be able to do. That's a tick off my own personal bucket list, that is. Yeah, give me a page. And so that's what happened. Over that weekend, a whole bunch of very talented, very famous, very big comics artists sat at their desks talking to fans and inking Ramona Freden's pencils so that by the end of the weekend, all of the pages had been re-inked and could be sent off to meet the Monday morning deadline. And um, I'm keen had people been to help, that there were in fact not enough pages to go around so that not everyone who volunteered to help actually got to help. Now, I have to tell you that comics people are lovely and that's the sort of thing that comics people will do, but they won't do it for just anyone. If you have a bad reputation in comics, then you have a bad reputation and people would go, oh man, sucks to be you, never mind, we'll see you on the train on Monday. But no, people turned out for Ramona Freedom. And I, and I often say this too. When people die, you can tell how people thought of them by the way they talked about. And social media has been alive this week with stories like the one I've just told you and memories and people sharing original Ramona Freedom pieces of art that they have in their own collections. It's been a huge, huge outpouring of love for this woman and for her work. Oh, Godspeed, Ramona Freiden. May your inkwell never run dry. Now, we'll move on and talk about what I told you last week I was going to talk about this week. Actually, no we won't. Because not for the first time things have gone a little bit wrong over here at Venusian Towers. What you have just heard was recorded last Monday. And I am now talking to you on Thursday the 29th of February. It is the day this show is supposed to drop. And uh, things have happened that have stopped me getting to the mic. Nothing serious, just lots of annoying deadlines and things I couldn't get out of and stuff. And there's just no way I've been able to get to the microphone to get things recorded. And it's now ten past four and I still haven't got all of the SETI stuff sorted out. And I just, I can't. This is me doing a whole desperate thing again now. Sorry, this is happening rather too often lately. Uh, basically, what the issue is, is we're coming up to the pressure point for GCSE students. If you are a GCSE student or you know one, 
If you're a GCSE student, hang in there. It'll be over soon. If you know a GCSE student, cut them some slack. They're having a tough time right now. The same is true of A-level students. I've had a couple of A-level students in the last couple of weeks who've had coursework deadlines, and that requires help from people. And as a professional English tutor, uh, which is one of the things I do to keep the lights on at Desties, you don't say no when you get an email that says, I've just written this. Is it any good? Can you give me some tips? What grade is this worth? All of that stuff. And do you know what? As a tutor, when you mark somebody's work, you have to be incredibly careful not to give them the answers and not to point them at stuff they wouldn't have thought of for themselves. It's really difficult and it takes time. And that basically is what's been happening all week. Uh, well, it's been happening for a couple of weeks, if I'm honest, but this week it's been happening and in those circumstances, something's always got to give. And one of the things that's had to give is me sitting down and recording this show. But I did promise a while ago, I will never give you dead air. And one of the great things about having been doing this shtick for so long now is there's a bunch of stuff that you might have heard before, but you've probably forgotten. So you might not remember that a long time ago, back in the Geeks at the Gates days, one of the things I started doing was recording an audiobook, a thing that I have written. And I'm going to be brutally honest with you. It's not perfect, but I'm actually quite proud of it. I, I like it. And so I'm going to drop the first chapter of my book, Shift, in here. Apologies if you've heard it. What I'm then going to do is... And this isn't going to happen soon. It's probably not going to happen till the summer because that's when I'll have more time. But I've been toying for a while with doing something called Reggie Reads, partly because as a GCSE and A-level tutor, I keep being reminded how much I love reading aloud to people. And I could do that on a podcast. And because I'm a GCSE tutor, I thought I could do something educational with it. And, you know, not just read the book, but, you know, do some analysis and that kind of stuff. And then it occurred to me that certainly the 19th century novel part of GCSE, those texts are in the public domain. I can totally read them out. So I'm going to be doing that in the summer and I'm going to throw my own work in there as well, partly out of ego and partly because, hey, nobody else is going to publish it. And I quite like the stories that I've made up. So. Think of this as a little trailer for something that's going to come in the next couple of months. Settle back, dear listener, and let me tell you a story. Shift. Chapter one. Ellie. Ellie liked to think of herself as an open-minded, non-judgmental kind of girl. Not the sort to make assumptions about people or to fix them with pejorative labels, but... Looking around the motley collection of people sitting at the beer garden table, she realised that she just couldn't help herself. Every single one of them was a fully paid up member of the sad stereotype club. There was Vicky, a nice enough woman in faded denim and huge hooped earrings, but with almost negative levels of charisma and charm. She was almost pathetically grateful for any attention that anyone paid to her and tried so hard to fit in that Ellie had to constantly repress the desire just to slap her. She didn't really seem interested in the paranormal or the unexplained, but was just tagging along with a waste of space of a boyfriend. Mike was in his late thirties, little older than Vicky, 
with thinning hair tied to a ponytail that always seemed to be just on the edge of greasy. He sat, one elbow on the weathered grey wood of the table, one hand resting proprietorially on Vicky's thigh. He was, as always, pontificating about the latest UFO sightings and alien abduction conspiracy theories in his loud nasal tones as she twirled her pale blonde hair in what she presumably thought was a coquettish manner. And then there was Brian. She'd known Brian since university. They'd met during Freshers' Week when they'd both signed up for the Unexplained Society. Somebody had once told her that you spent Freshers' Week making friends you'd spend the rest of your time at uni trying to get rid of. That was certainly true of Brian. Three years out of university and he was still there, like a bloody limpet. It wasn't that she didn't like him. He was a really nice guy. Generous to a fault, always willing to drop everything and dash off to help a friend in need, and always quick with a kind word or a shoulder to cry on. It was just that he was so, so devoted to her. She'd known him less than a month before, one drunken night after an unsock meeting. He'd declared his undying love for her, insisting in a rather florid turn of phrase that his heart was chained to hers with links of gold that could never tarnish. She'd rebuffed him as kindly and as gently as she could. He was, after all, a nice guy, however far from being her type he might have been. And they'd never spoken of it again. She tried to create a bit of distance between them, but somehow he just never seemed to go away. He was never actually creepy, but sometimes he'd just look at her for that little bit too long or stand that little bit too close, his repressed desire so obvious he might as well have had a big neon sign above his head, flashing, desperate for a shag, in ten-foot letters. But then, what did that make her? A 27-year-old graduate with a dead-end job which bore no relation to her degree, a string of unsuccessful relationships behind her, and it wasn't even a long string, sitting in a beer garden with three other losers discussing whether the US government was using alien technology to create the next generation of military vehicles. She wasn't interested in this conversation. She was just there because she had nowhere else to go on a Friday night and nobody else to go there with. Ellie was, she reflected, no different than Vicky, really. Except Vicky wouldn't be spending her night sleeping alone in a slightly damp flat above an Indian takeaway. So, it was the real loser. She swigged down the last of her beer and noticed that Brian was staring again. Sighing inwardly, she rose from the beer garden bench and made her excuses. She just didn't have the energy to deal with any more of Mike's nonsense conspiracy theories or Brian's pathetically hungry stares. Declining his offer to walk her home and turning up the collar of her jacket against the chill of the late spring evening, she gave Vicky a little finger wave and headed for the gate that led from the beer garden onto the street. Mike's reedy voice followed her as she headed home. The man in the bowler hat watched as the young woman exited the pub's garden and headed off down the road. He wasn't Hiding exactly, but dressed all in black and standing beneath the shadow of a huge old oak tree, he wasn't immediately obvious either. He grinned at the whining, self-important monotone of the young woman's recent drinking companion, drifting across the garden. And yes, it's obvious. 
The government knows all about it. The Yanks are testing earlier technology here because the Russians are paying too much attention to Area 51. That's what all these UFO sightings are all about. The man in the bowler hat tuned out the imbecilic groaning and focused on the retreating shape of the young woman as she moved from street lamp to street lamp, pool of light to pool of light in the gathering dusk. Why did these monkeys insist on believing their governments were hiding things from them? Especially when, at the same time, they also believed their rulers to be a bunch of incompetents who couldn't be trusted to run a bath. Still, it made his job a hell of a lot easier. Well, it had back when he'd had a job. Shaking his head at the willful stupidity of humankind, the man in the bowler hat eased out from beneath the canopy of the old oak tree and silently began to follow the young woman. It was a nice night. The darkening sky was mostly clear and the scent of opportunistic barbecues teased at her nostrils. The evening chirruping of songbirds blended with distant shouts of kids playing whatever the hell kind of games kids play these days and the gentle whoosh of traffic on the main road a couple of streets away. Ellie rounded the corner into her street, breathing in deeply to catch the spiced curry smell she had come to associate with home. Her flat was above the Bengal Spice Takeaway and she always enjoyed the way the aromas of Bengali cooking drifted out to meet her. She was rummaging in her bag, wondering if she could afford to nip in and pick up some sabji, when she realised that she was being followed. He was about a hundred yards behind her, walking close to the raggedy hawthorn hedge that ran along the pavement. The deepening shadows made him hard to see. He was dressed entirely in black, but she was definitely there. She quickened her pace and tried to convince herself that she was just being paranoid. But why would somebody who wasn't up to no good walk so close to a hawthorn hedge when they didn't need to? Those things were damn prickly. And she was the only other person in the street. Trying to look unconcerned, she withdrew her hand from her bag, keys dripped firmly in her fist. The black-clad man was getting closer now, and the door to her flat was down a narrow alley. She pursed her lips and decided that, unless she were actually Buffy the Vampire Slayer, deliberately entering a dark alley while pursued by a strange man would be less than bright. Time for a curry after all, then. The man in the bowler hat watched as the young woman disappeared into the brightly lit takeaway. Ah, heck, he muttered under his breath. He didn't like letting her out of his sight, but she'd be safe enough in there. And how long could it possibly take to order a curry? He sat down on a shadowy bollard and settled down to wait. The interior of the Bengal spice was bright, brownish, and filled with the aromas of hot oil and hotter spices. A large illuminated menu adorned one wall, showing slightly faded photos of various dishes available. Ellie strode in, the bell above the door dinging cheerfully, and was greeted by the smiling face of the woman behind the counter. Ah, Ellie! Good evening! How are you? Come for a bit of proper food. Ellie smiled. Hi, Mrs Chatterjee. I love a chicken sabji, but actually I was wondering if I could use the kitchen stairs up to my flat. Mrs Chatterjee's hazel eyes twinkled with amusement, and her chubby face creased into a smile. Did you forget your keys again? How many times do I tell you? Always put them right back in your bag and then you never lose them. She bustled towards the counter and lifted the flap that separated the customers from the kitchen. Ellie waved her keys. No, got the keys, Mrs C. Just a bit of man trouble. Mrs Chatterjee's smile widened into a conspiratorial grin. 
Come now, Ellie. You live here nearly a year. I see who goes in your flat. You're not in so good a position to play hard to get, you know. Ellie's smile faded. Mrs C, there's somebody following me. I don't know him. It may be nothing, but, well, you know. A wave of the hand indicated that she'd rather be safe than sorry. Mrs Chatterjee's face hardened and her voice became clipped and businesslike. She motioned Ellie through the counter flap. Come through. I'll take a look for you. Mrs Chatterjee squeezed past Ellie and peered through the window into the night. In the shadows beyond the nearest streetlight, she could dimly make out the silhouettes of a man perched on one of the bollards at the end of the little parade of shops that was home to the Bengal spice. He's still here, Susu, and you're right. He's a strange one. Who wears a bowler hat? The man in the bowler hat shifted his position. The rough coldness of the concrete was making his backside uncomfortably numb. If I end up with piles, I'm definitely finding a new line of work, he muttered to himself. He reached into a waistcoat pocket and pulled out a small pocket watch-sized device and gazed at it for a second, a blend of concern and irritation on his face. Bloody hell, that's all I need. He rose from the bollard and strode quickly to the takeaway's door, pocketing the device as on the way. He could see through the glass shop front that the young woman wasn't in there anymore and he cursed his complacency. Why had he assumed there was only one way in and out? Why had he assumed she wouldn't notice him? Why hadn't he had the wit to realise that being followed by an unknown man in black might make a woman nervous? The bell clanged merrily as he rushed into the shop, but there was no welcome on the face of the pudgy woman on the other side of the counter. You leave now, she scowled, or I call my son. The man in the bowler hat held out his hands in a placating gesture. You don't understand. I'm here to... Samara! The woman's yell was surely enough to wake the very dead. What it actually summoned was a six and a half foot slab of muscle with a neatly trimmed beard and black shoulder length hair. Ma? His voice was deep and seemed to resonate malice. Mrs Chatterjee motioned at the man in the bowler hat. Samar, this, she paused. Gentleman has been making a nuisance of himself and pestering women. I would like him to leave. Samar stepped through the counter and the man in the bowler hat took a step back. Please. His voice was smooth, but tinged with just a little desperation. I need to speak to the woman who just came in. A big, meaty hand propelled him toward the door. The man in the bowler hat wondered for a fraction of a second whether his assailant would even bother to open the thing before hurling him through it. But the scream of terror from upstairs froze everyone before he had a chance to find out. Ah, oh, no! With a death roll of the shoulder... The man in the bowler hat dodged free of Samar's grip, vaulted over the countertop and ran in search of stairs. He knew, even before he'd reached the still-closed door of the upstairs flat, that when he kicked it in, he'd find it empty. Too late, he muttered to himself. By the time Samar and his mother reached the splintered remains of what had once been the door of Ellie's flat, the man in the bowler hat was gone too. Shift. Chapter 2. The Office. Ellie opened her eyes and immediately regretted it. The room she found herself in was brightly lit and the glare cranked the pain in her already pounding head all the way to eleven. She rubbed her temple, 
and tried to work out where she was and what had happened. She remembered climbing the kitchen stairs to the door of her flat to avoid the weirdo in the bowler hat. She'd gone through her front door and... What? There'd been somebody waiting for her. A faint smell of mothballs and then darkness. Where was she now? How long had she been here? With tentative fingers and keeping her eyes firmly closed against the light, she began to probe her surroundings. She was lying on a narrow bench, maybe a bed with a thin mattress. Slowly, she opened her eyes again, giving them time to adjust. The tiny room was a white and sterile and, save the bed she was lying on, an empty and utterly featureless cube, about six feet by six. There were no windows and, despite the glare, no visible light sources. Instead, the walls, floor and ceiling seemed to emit their own flat white light, which meant there were no shadows, something Ellie found extremely disconcerting. There was also no apparent way of getting in or out. She sat up carefully and swung her legs off the bed, noting with some relief that she was at least still dressed, and considered her situation. Given that she had, at some point, clearly entered the room, there must be some kind of door somewhere. She slid off the bed onto her feet and inspected the walls. They were smooth, slightly cool to the touch and completely featureless. Ellie sat back down on the bed. Brilliant, she thought. Unexplained kidnapping... Locked in an unexplainable cell. A lifetime of interest in the paranormal. Nearly a decade of putting it with Mike and his mates. And here I am, kidnapped by bloody aliens. She shook her head. That would, of course, have been Mike's immediate conclusion. Well, either that or some kind of CIA plot. But she didn't buy it. Since she'd been a kid, she'd read everything she could find about alien encounters, ghosts, Bigfoot, Nessie, the Yeti, every aspect of the paranormal. She'd yet to come across anything that didn't have a logical, boring, terrestrial explanation. That was why she'd done a degree in psychology. Her dissertation had been a study into the reasons that otherwise rational people will believe irrational things. She briefly considered banging on the walls and shouting demands to be released, but decided she'd achieve nothing by that beyond a sore throat and bruised fists. So instead, she leaned back against the wall and settled down to wait. The man in the bowler hat slumped into the driver's seat of the black VW camper and reached into his waistcoat pocket for the watch size device and studied the screen again. His frown deepened and he reached for a small grey ball on the dashboard. As he touched it, a pale yellow light began to glow from deep within the orb, and it hovered upwards until it was directly in front of the bowler-hatted man's face. He waved his hand in front of it a couple of times and began to speak. Monko, I need a new fix on the girl. They beat me to her. There was a brief burst of static before a tinny voice replied, apparently from within the globe. Bloody hell, Triss! What have you been doing? You've been tracking her for days. How could you let them get the jump on you? The man in the bowler hat heaved a heavy sigh and deepened his scowl. Oh, leave it out, Bunko. I'm really not in the mood. I had to wait until I was sure of the target. You know what happened the last time you made a misidentification. Just tell me where she is and I'll go in and grab her. Making the calculations now? There was a long pause. And when the voice from the orb spoke again, it carried an audible note of fear. Triss? 
We can't get to her now. They've taken her to the office. The man in the bowler hat exhaled, and for a moment his head dropped. Then his face hardened, and he looked up. Bag at that! He lifted a flap on the dashboard to reveal a selection of chrome knobs and switches. He made a few adjustments and waved the globe away. I'm not letting those pinstripe bastards have her. She's too important. The van's engine revved hard. But she's in the office. Nobody gets out of there. I did, didn't I? I guess it's time for a crowd freezing sequel. The VW camper leapt forward with a squeal of tyres and a cloud of smoke. The orb fell silent. Ellie had no idea how long she'd been sitting there. It felt like hours, but she hadn't been wearing a watch when she was taken and there was simply no way of judging time. It had been long enough for the pounding in her head to subside, which was a relief, although the pain in her head was being replaced by a pain in her stomach as a serious hunger pangs was starting to kick in. She also really, really needed a wee. The door opening took her by surprise, not least because, until it opened, it hadn't been there. One second, the wall opposite her bed had been a blank and featureless expanse of white. The next second, there was an open door with two soberly suited men standing watching her. They stood motionless and unspeaking for what seemed like an age. Ellie stared back defiantly, the faint smell of mothballs once again tickling her nostrils. Both men were tall and dressed in black suits with a grey pinstripe dazzlingly white shirts and grey ties. Both men looked old, with gaunt complexions and white hair, although the one closest to her looked particularly cadaverous. Eventually, the cadaverous man spoke. His voice was harsh and raspy, like a rake through dead leaves. You are Eleanor Sage. Ellie wasn't sure whether that was a statement or a question, and she didn't really care. What I am... He's a very angry woman who is going to piss all over your floor if you don't show me to a bathroom. Ellie tried to keep her tone level. She was damned if she's going to show these people fear. The cadaverous man spoke again. All in good time, Miss Sage. First, we must ask you some questions. Ellie scowled. You can ask all you like, mate. I don't know who you are or where I am, and I'm not saying anything until I do, and I'm not... Kidding. Unless you fancy an unpleasant clean-up job and a hefty laundry bill, you'll show me where the loo is. She stood and stepped towards the door. The cadaverous man raised a hand and she found that she couldn't move. You will stay where you are, he rasped. His companion leaned forwards and whispered in his ear, and the cadaverous man nodded. You will wait, he said, and we will arrange suitable facilities. Then the door was gone and Ellie was alone once more in her featureless cell. Police Constable Andrew Brown was having a really, really bad day. His nine-year-old daughter had treated him and his wife by making them dinner for their anniversary the night before, and he was feeling more than a little bit queasy. On top of that, he'd had a flat on his way to the station and had arrived for work after his shift had started, which, by tradition, meant that he had to make tea for everyone all week and get the first round in at the pub on Friday night, in spite of the fact that he never actually went to any of the post-work booze-ups. 
And now this. He looked at the splintered door and ransacked flat. Burglary, he understood. Kidnapping, he understood. This just didn't make any sense at all. So, Mrs Chatterjee, just so I can get things straight in my head, Miss Sage has a private entrance to her flat, but she came in through your shop. Mrs Chatterjee nodded, her jowls wobbling emphatically. Yes. She came into the takeaway because she said a man was following her. She wanted to use the kitchen stairs up to her flat. P.C. Brown scribbled in his notebook. These stairs lead to the landing outside her door? Mrs Chatterjee nodded. That is right. Most of upstairs is her flat, but we have a storeroom up there too. Always she is forgetting her keys and comes in this way, but not last night. Last night there was a man following. I saw him. And you say he kicked in the door and kidnapped your tenant? I don't think so. She screamed while he was still downstairs. P.C. Brown looked thoughtful. An accomplice? Mrs. Chatterjee shook her head. I do not think so. The man seemed shocked when he heard her scream. He broke away from my son and went running after her. I, I think he might have been trying to help. P.C. Brown paused. He'd met Samar Chatterjee when he'd first arrived on scene. He found the idea of anyone breaking free of that behemoth hard to swallow. He gave Mrs Chatterjee a searching look. And he ran off. Chatterjee shook her head. I do not know where he went. I heard him kick down the door. My son was only just behind him. He did not come out of the flat. He just disappeared. Disappeared? Mrs Chatterjee waved her hands to imitate a small explosion. P.C. Brown sighed. It was going to be a long shift. <laughs> Ellie was feeling somewhat better. Shortly after the cadaverous man had left her alone, the door had reappeared, and the flashing arrows on the floor had led her to a gleaming marble bathroom, which was equipped not only with a toilet, an item Ellie had never been so pleased to see in her life, but also a shower, soap and a stack of fluffy white towels. Not having been born yesterday, she did a quick search for hidden cameras and, finding none, experimented with the lock on the bathroom's door. Satisfied that she could indeed lock it from the inside and so be sure of some privacy, she made full use of the facilities. Stepping out of the shower, eyes squeezed shut against the lavender-scented soap suds, Ellie searched for a towel and wrapped it around herself, using a corner to dab her stinging eyes free of soapy foam. As she did so, she heard a faint whisper of air behind her. The hand was over her mouth before she had any chance to scream. So, there you have it. That is chapters one and two of Shift. A novel that was inspired by a couple of things. It started, and I don't genuinely can't tell if you can tell anymore, it started as a pastiche of Doctor Who. And it grew quickly. And it didn't take long before the character that's supposed to be the central character is the guy that talks like that, isn't it? And yeah, the, guy, the, the, the man in the bowler hat, he was supposed to be the main character. And I, I, I'd got to about halfway through chapter three when I realised that he isn't. And that the main character is in fact Ellie, which came as a bit of a shock, not least because... I don't 
think I'm particularly good at writing female characters. And so to have one as a protagonist is really, really inconvenient from my point of view. Uh, so there's been a lot of learning involved in producing this story. And I'm kind of not wanting this show to get you know too inside baseball, but I think another really important part of being a geek is the creative side of it. And, you know, I I don't make any claims to being a great writer. I'm definitely not a great writer. I, I like writing. And I want to encourage people who think that, you know, they can't write because they're not good enough. I want to encourage them to do it anyway. You don't have to show anybody. But if you've got a story you want to tell, write it down. And... I suppose I would say this, wouldn't I? Because now I have a platform I can publish my work on. But I made a mistake when I was younger. I thought that in order to be a writer, you had to be published. And I thought, well, I don't know how to do that. So there's not really any point in me writing. And, and I hope one or two of you are already sadly shaking your heads at whatever listening device you're using which is going to be weird if you're wearing a headset, but because that's wrong. That's the wrong way to think about things. If I'd sat down as a, as a teenager or in my twenties and written down the things that I had in my head, the stories that I wanted to tell, if I'd done that, then I would now have a serious body of work behind me. I would be a much better writer than I am now. Would it matter that none of it had been published? Not really. Not, not, not really. And by doing it, I would have put myself in the situation where I had things to show people. When I had an opportunity to speak to somebody who had an agent or who knew an agent or who was an agent or who was a publisher or, you know, when there were calls for submissions. I would have had something that I could have shown people. And yes, maybe people would have hated it. Maybe you all hated what you've just heard. And you know what? That's fine. You're entitled to that. But maybe some of you liked it. And if one of you did, in many ways, my work here is done. And I could have been doing that for years and I wasn't. And mostly, I think, it was a combination of nervousness and laziness. I I didn't have the self-belief to tell myself that, you know what, Reggie, you're a fantastic writer and people would love to read your story. I didn't have the ego to tell myself that. I didn't have the confidence. I didn't have the self-belief. But I let that lack of confidence and self-belief pander to my laziness. And it became an excuse for not sitting down and doing the work. So what I think what I'm saying is if you are listening to this and you want to write or you want to do art or you want to make anything, do it. Just do it. Maybe nobody will like it. Maybe nobody will even see it. But nobody will have a chance to like it. Nobody will have a chance to see it unless you make the thing. Always. Always make the thing. And you know what else? Just something else. It's really important, I think, to say here. 
I let people tell me, well, you know, you're never going to make a living at it, are you? And I used that as another excuse to not do it at all. And no, I'm not going to make, I'm, I am now a 52 year old man. I am not going to make a living as a writer at this point. I do occasionally get paid to do some writing, but I'm never going to make a living at it, I don't think. I'm I'm pretty much resigned to that now. Uh, if you'd asked me when I was in the position of some of my GCSE students, when I was that age, what I wanted to do when I left school, I would have told you I wanted to be a writer. Now, I've accepted that making a living as a writer is much like being an astronaut. It's a dream I still have, but it ain't happening now. But it doesn't matter. Not everything has to be monetized. Not every hobby has to be a side hustle. You can just make things for pleasure. You can just make things to share with your friends. You can do that. It's allowed. It's fine. It's even good. You can do it. So what I'm saying is do it. There are clubs and organisations and such like that you can join in and around Harrogate. I I would tell you that I would put links in the show notes, but I can also tell you that as I'm recording this at 25 minutes past four on Thursday, the 29th of February, mere hours before this has to be up on Harrogate Community Radio. Actually, if I'm honest and uh, sorry to the folks at the station, mere minutes. It probably should be up already, really, before it's supposed to be up on the station. Um, I'm probably not going to have time to do show notes before this this goes live. I will try and do show notes, but if my the rest of my week and my weekend goes the way the the, the week so far has gone, I am not going to have time to do that either. But there are groups and stuff around. If you can't find one, come and see me at the shop. Have a chat. We'll see what we can figure out. Of course, and here's a crazy thing, you could get some like-minded friends together and start a group yourself. You could do that. You could just meet in a coffee shop or a bar, depending on your age, and just, you know, work creatively. Share your creative ideas. You could just do that. You don't need anybody's permission. So, yeah, I wasn't intending to make this a rallying cry for just getting on and being creative, but I'm going to make it one. Do it. Make the thing. That's probably something that you wish you could do. Do it. I don't even care if you want to start making movies. Make movies. Okay, you probably can't afford all the expensive sort of camera equipment and lighting rigs and stuff, but you've probably got a smartphone. You can start making movies on that. There's free editing software out there. Find that on the internet. You could do that. You could set up a YouTube channel and suddenly you've got a distributor. These things are possible now in ways that they haven't been before. So, you know, do it. Just do it. Don't let anything, especially not your own nervousness, your own lack of confidence and your own personal laziness hold you back. Don't, in short, be like me. Or at least don't be like I was. I'm not doing that anymore. Ah, and with that little call to arms, we still have eight and a half minutes of the show left to go. And I am vamping furiously so that we don't have any dead air because I have no script now uh, that I have pre-prepared to fill the next um, seven and a quarter minutes, as it is now. 
And before anybody emails in about that, please don't check my maths. It's probably wrong. Anyway, uh, we do, therefore, have a little bit of time to do a little bit of news. And so uh, I am woefully uninformed on this. I am just going to point out that you might want to check the private lunar mission that was that we talked about in the space segment a couple of weeks ago has now made it to the moon and it's doing really well considering and i had a little bit of a rant this morning um talking to my wife about this sort of thing uh, my wife is very long-suffering and very very tolerant and she's used to my rants but there's been a, some sort of slightly snidey negative coverage of this thing uh, okay what's happened is a private company has landed something on the moon and it's landed safely and it's working now it isn't working as well as it should or as well as they'd hoped and the reason it isn't is because when it landed it fell over well do you know what that's nicely comedic and cartoonish and you can take the mickey out of that if you want but it doesn't take away from the fact that they have landed a working thing on the moon that's not actually very easy and as for falling over on the moon um i will simply point you at gene cernan the last man who walked on the moon in 1972 uh he was part of apollo 17 the last crewed lunar mission that america flew and um i had the privilege to meet gene cernan uh, a few years ago now uh he did a talk and the, you know the whole meet and greet thing afterwards and his talk was mostly about how he spent most of the time on the moon falling over and how difficult it is to walk on the moon. And one of the things he did and other astronauts before him did in order to walk easily on the moon was to not try and walk. They hopped. And I mention that because one of the things that the lander has released onto the moon is a little rover that hops. And it turns out that that works really well. So. This is a mission that was really a proof of concept. It was always a little bit out there, but they have successfully put devices on the moon that are working. And actually, do you know what? That the mainlander is still working, even though it's fallen over, is another huge win. You can't assume that you're going to land something on the surface of another celestial body. And that nothing will go wrong. What matters is that if things go wrong, you can still do something with the asset that you sent up there. So you can expect more from me on this mission in the next couple of weeks as more stuff happens and I have time to properly read up about it. Since we're talking about the moon, uh, I will point out that getting people to the moon is looking like a slightly longer term prospect than NASA were claiming not that long ago. And my only response to that really is told you, because there's a lot of things that need to happen before NASA can send people to the moon. And none of those things look like happening anytime soon. Uh, SpaceX still are having issues with Starship. I still would not trust that machine to take anyone anywhere right now. That's not a ding on SpaceX. What again, what they're trying to do is very hard. But I think they did give NASA unrealistic timelines. And I think NASA were foolish 
to accept those timelines. Uh, so, you know, there you go. There's that. But there will be more Artemis news soon because Artemis 2, which will be taking people around the moon, is still on track. That should happen next year. So keep your eyes open for that. And we now have three and a half minutes to go. And therefore, there is just enough time for me to squeeze in a little bit of Doctor Who news. Now, we all know that Doctor Who is not going to be back for a couple of months. We're looking at late spring, early summer before we get Shooty Gatwal in all his glory, fully taking over command of the show. We know that this will be Doctor Who going international properly for the first time because Disney Plus are going to be really pushing Shooty Gatwal's first season as the Doctor globally. So I think that's going to see a huge expansion of Doctor Who fandom, which from my point of view can only be a good thing. I do think it's important to remember, though, that this is a show that is 60, count them, 60 years old. It's older than me. And it's important that the show remembers that it has a heritage. And with that in mind, I was really pleased to see some stuff on social media from Shooty Atwell, who was celebrating the fact that he had recently done his first day of filming in an actual quarry. He added that it was flipping freezing. I'm paraphrasing, they're not the exact words he used. And I liked that because it shows that Gatwa has a nose for the heritage of the show. There was a long-running gag, Terry Wogan used to go on about it quite a lot, that Doctor Who was a show that went to alien worlds that were always a sand quarry in Dorset. And, you know, the whole, oh, it was filmed in quarry thing. It's a big thing for classic Who. So it's nice that the most modern of the modern Doctors is just nodding at that. And while we're talking about Doctors, um, I'm genuinely conflicted to discover that the ninth Doctor, the very brilliant Christopher Eccleston, is going to be in Celebrity Big Brother, which is a show I have not watched for many, many years. I'm not going to lie and say I've never watched it, but I have not watched it for many, many years. I had no intention of watching it ever again. And now Christopher Eccleston's in it, for goodness sake. So um, I might end up watching some of Big Brother now. So, huh. Anyway, we are nearly out of time so you don't have to listen to me wibble on anymore uh, some actually well-planned programs are following whether you are listening to this on harrogate community radio or in the podcast feed uh, you probably have a much more organized much more professional show queued up in your podcast feed if you're listening that way and there's definitely a much more professionally produced show about to hit you on harrogate community radio i'm not sure which one because i don't know what, what day you're listening to this on but whatever it is It'll be much more organised than this. <sighs> I will be back next week with a, a show that isn't spontaneously improvised. I hope. Um, until then, I guess all I need to tell you is that Geeking with Destination Venus is a Venus Rising media production, which is proudly made in Harrogate. We will see you next week with, as I say, something much more 
organised, much slicker and much more professional. Until then, be kind to yourself, be kind to everybody else and above all else, stay geeky!